Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome back to episode 75 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Christina Lopez Aducci, founder of House of Puff, a Latina-led and women-owned cannabis lifestyle company based in New York City. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Max. Excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, I want to start with your name. And this is honest. This is what I I want to understand. When somebody uses their maiden name, is it hyphenated? Why? And the only reason I'm asking is you've been such an awesome person to talk to that I want to know how to deal with hyphenated names when somebody uses their maiden name. I don't know if it's part of the culture or what it is, but explain to me why or what we should be using. Is it, would you do prefer Christina Lopez Aducci? Like where are you at at this point in your life? Yeah. So two, two things. I love that you brought this up because no one has ever asked me that. And I love answering questions that people have never asked me. So yes, it is a cultural thing, especially in Spain, but that's not why I did it. My mom has a hyphenated name and I grew up my entire life, her regretting that she hyphenated her name. But I love my maiden name Lopez so much because it is to me a a badge of honor to say, hey, I'm a proud Latina, but I don't, there's no hyphen. And oddly enough, I don't have a middle name. I grew up making up a middle name. It was Alexis, if you're wondering. And I always was so upset at my mom for never giving me a middle name. So I said, when I get married, Lopez will be my middle name. And then Aducci's my last name. So Christina Lopez Aducci. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I grew up in Glendale, Arizona. And so half of, uh, half of my school, I went to a private Catholic school and half of us were Hispanic and half were white. So I had uh, like my sister's last name is Dominguez. So I totally get it. <laughs> so, and, and I saw lots of, lots of uh, hyphenated names and in this case, it's not. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to start with that because I, I always wonder and yeah. I think always afraid to ask because they're afraid like there's something like sensitive there and I knew you'd be willing to share. Oh, op- open book, Max. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get in. Let's get into the meat of this. Let's start out by talking about House of Puff. Uh, yeah. What's the best way to describe your brand? And then I know there's a lot uh, to that, but I think you'll do a beautiful job of it. And then let's get into why you started it. Sure. So the, the one-liner we always say is House of Puff empowers women to consume cannabis unapologetically by making it chic and easy. Uh, we I started House of Puff about four years ago now. My background is in the art world. My first business was an art content platform. And we did over I got 800 interviews with, with artists. We did events. We had a photography service. I really immersed myself into the art market and art world. Previous to that, I was at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's research. Thought I wasn't going to politics because I got my master's in international affairs, but Michael J. Fox uh, scooped me up and very grateful for my, my time there. But all of the while had this entrepreneurial 
spirit that I just couldn't shake. And I've come from a long line of risk takers. You know, my grandparents left Spain and Puerto Rico to come to New York to start a new life. My grandfather was a pastor who opened up a furniture store. My mom sold real estate and then decided she wanted to go to medical school. So all of these risk-taking journeys, it was sort of inevitable for me to, to do the same. And so left the Michael J. Fox Foundation started the art magazine and hadn't consumed cannabis. I mean, growing up in the household, I did. It was obviously completely off limits. I grew up during the dare era. So I was honestly afraid of it. And I'm a goody two shoes. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it 100 with you. So didn't consume in college, didn't consume in grad school. And it was only until I moved to New York where my anxiety issues started to creep up. And I thought, okay, so let's give this a whirl. Uh, But unfortunately for me, there were really no products sort of speaking to the kind of consumer I am. I'm a stylish New Yorker. I'm an art collector. I like nice things. I want to leave smoking accessories out on the coffee table. And so I took matter into my own hands. And and here we are. House of Puff was was born. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, I've been consuming cannabis for a while and I've been trying to get my wife uh, into consuming cannabis. I think you might help because she's very <laughs> fashion oriented and very art oriented. Yeah. So as I was got kind of reading through this stuff last night and thinking about what we're going to talk about, I'm like, huh, I think I should buy my wife some of this stuff. So we'll take that offline. But let me dig into a couple of these things mm-hmm. uh, that you pointed out. I loved, I don't know where I read it or I heard it, but I loved um the, the, how your mom was in, you know, how, how your mom's journey went and how that was a big inspiration to you. If you could dig into that a little bit more, what, so she, she decided at what age to go back to grad school? Yeah, she was in her, I think mid or late thirties and she didn't go to a fancy school. She went to union community college, uh, graduated and we lived in a a small little town in New Jersey and she sold real estate and she was doing really well for herself. My dad uh, worked at ShopRite cutting call cuts. So I, you know, we grew up, uh, I would say a a low income level, but I didn't know all the better. I felt like I had the world. Uh, And so very happy childhood, but my mom always had this urge to do more with her life. And she was always fascinated with becoming a doctor. And I, no one really took her seriously until one day I must've been five, six years old. She sat my dad down and she was like, I think I'm going to go to medical school. And everybody was like, huh? you can't get into medical school. You are a Puerto Rican woman. We have no money. You know, everybody freaked out. But my mom called up uh, UMDNJ at the time. I think it's uh, records now in in Newark, New Jersey, said, uh, I'm going to take my MCATs, got a fantastic score. And literally the next day was enrolled in medical school. And, you know, it was hard for her. It was hard for us as a family. She would she wasn't home a lot. She would stay up very late. I could see the light under her office. Uh, I, I get emotional when I tell this story because. She's just such a, um, I, I don't know how she did it. Like just having such a daughter at a young age and with nothing. And she fought all against the odds and she graduated top of her class. I was, you know, eight or nine years old. There were times when she couldn't afford a babysitter 
and I'd go medical school with her. And I secretly think she wanted me to become a doctor. Uh, but um, my mom is, is, is my hero. And I actually went up on stage when she graduated and now she's a badass bee at a, a, the largest health organization in New York. Um, so yeah, I, and she wrote a book about it called the girl from the Bronx, but my mom is like an icon in my eyes. Oh man, that's amazing. That's amazing. I have a uh, super strong mother as well. So what a you great it. start this conversation. Yeah. This, this helps lay the foundation for the rest of what we're going to talk about to have a mom <laughs> like that. You've yeah. already made me cry, Max. I don't I know, know about I'm, you. Sorry. I almost got me crying too, uh, because <laughs> I understand. I mean, my mom didn't quite go take that route, but she was a very strong mother as well. And she is the cornerstone of my family as well. Um, let's go back to, uh, talk about how House of Puff is different from your competitors. I know there's probably not that many competitors out there, but I'm mm -hmm. just, I, I like to dig into this just because I think it's so cool. Like yeah. I think you saw like that this needed to be differentiated. You saw some of the things that when you finally got into uh, consuming cannabis, I think you started to see how, you know, kind of uh, unartful uh, the, the uh, everything right. was, uh, all the accessories. And so talk about how different you are just maybe from most people. I, I haven't really found any competitors necessarily uh, that directly compete with you. Yeah. And I appreciate that there are, I think the difference between us and them really is goes back to your point about the art. Art and artists are inseparable from the House of Puffs DNA. So our business model is we hire artists, mostly BIPOC women artists, uh, to create our initial designs and small batch production. And we go out to our community Instagram newsletter and, and start selling our wares and get feedback. And if the feedback is good and we see that they're selling well, then we move on to commercial production. Of course, keeping the artist's DNA, everything, almost all of our products are still hand-painted by our artists, which is fantastic. And I hope as we scale, I'm not sure we'll be able to keep that, um, but that's just a really uh, exciting, exciting thing that we do. And we also... As we know, and I'm sure most of us know, artists uh, have a hard time creating steady income. And what we do is we license images from them to feature on our products, like our rolling papers, for example. And so what happens is we like once you once an artist sells a painting, that's it. They can't collect royalties on it anymore. Of course, Web3 and NFTs are changing, which is great and becoming this creator economy. Um, but we take that, we license the artwork, we put it on our rolling papers. And every time we sell that product, it, a portion goes back to the artist. And we have a really exciting collaboration coming up actually on May 11th in New York with this wonderful artist, Chris Wilson. Uh, and he is a uh, uh, formerly incarcerated and we took a painting that was inspired by his time in solitary confinement. And we're teaming up with Solitary Watch to really spread the message of, of abolishing solitary confinement. So again, it's it's art as this vehicle of, for social change is, is also what makes us so different. Love it, love it. Yeah, we uh, we have been involved in cannabis. We also have been doing things um, with Last Prisoner Project, things like that. So we're very passionate about uh, the same things you guys, or the same thing you are and, and your team uh, for all the same reasons. Um, how, uh, what I thought was also super interesting 
and I think you articulate yourself well around this, but how are your products destigmatizing cannabis in the context of motherhood? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I still feel the stigma, especially when I go to like my children's school and people will ask me, Oh, like, what do you do? And I, and I still sometimes hesitate. I don't, I, I moved to a new state. I don't really know what's going on and how people feel. Most of the time I, I, I'm very forthcoming and I say, I, I'm in the cannabis space and I'll usually get two responses. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions for you. That's amazing. Or really? And that's when I have to sort of bop them over the head with some data points and try to convince them and, and share stories. Everything that we create really has sort of a feminine touch to it. And it's easy to use. Women are the fastest growing consumers in this segment. Let's not forget that. We have to speak to them and market to them in a, in a different way. And the women that we that we encounter and our, and our consumers they are still a little confused, especially in the Northeast market, right? As the Northeast comes online, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, uh, they're all falling like dominoes, by the way. People are still kind of nervous, I like to say, and you have to create a frictionless experience for, for women, especially in women of color, right? As a woman of color, I found it daunting. I was scared. I was nervous. I don't, how do I use this bong? What end of, a, of the one hitter do I light? So we make it very easy to use. All of our products come with instruction cards. They also on the back of the instruction cards, if reading is not your thing, a QR code that will lead you to our YouTube site that will show you on video how to use everything. And so the feedback we get from women is, wow, you're making this so much easier for me. I feel comfortable using your products. I want to talk about using the They become tastemakers almost. Man, I love it. I love it. You're absolutely right. And I've, I've saw, I went and saw some of your YouTube channel, <laughs> uh, which we'll get into as well, which looks like you had a lot of fun with. Um, do you feel like this is a, this is kind of a deep question. I normally, I don't throw this at somebody, but oh boy, uh, do you feel like you found your purpose with House of Puff? Absolutely. Is that a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. I We're the first ever purpose-based leadership search firm on the planet. So when people start, you know, feeling like they have aligned like their past, kind of their passion and all these things, you know, that's when you start talking about truly, you know, you'll find your purpose sometimes for the rest of your life. Sometimes it'll be a phase, but at least it seems like the way you talk about this with the energy you have, mm -hmm. um, it feels like you found your purpose. I mean, it just comes out of you as though you have. So I just wanted to ask and confirm, <laughs> like, I'm hearing well, and seeing it the right way. Well, A, I sure hope so. B, I wake up every day doing what I love. Now, are there some days where I am stressed beyond belief and I have imposter syndrome and I think, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Should I be doing this? But then there are moments that you have and everything sort of comes together. All of the work that you've ever done, all of, you know, I think about when I graduated grad school and I thought I was, my career was going to take me in a totally different path and into politics. And then I think about my time at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Then I think about my time in the art world and all of those areas of my life I have with House of Puff and cannabis. I love to talk about politics and social equity and cannabis. I've built a brand around the art world and, and good design. 
And then you have, you know, organizations like the Michael J. Fox Foundation who are putting out these white papers on Parkinson's and cannabis use and, and the health benefits of this beautiful plant. So it, it sort of has come full circle for me. And I mean, people can't see me, but I'm always smiling ear to ear because I just, I feel so fortunate that I get to do this. Awesome. Awesome. I feel the same way getting to, you know, hire senior level folks, which was one of my passions and now doing it with, you know, uh, all types of companies that are, which we, we call purpose driven companies. Like, do you, uh, is this what you talk about at the dinner table or what is, does, is your husband, does he, is he into this too? Is what's his view on this? Cause I, I think my wife, she, she, she listens and she's into it, but sometimes I'm like, man, maybe I talk about this too much. Maybe I should talk about other stuff, but how, I mean, is there the same dialogue go on at the dinner table as with your husband? Oh, he absolutely, he's my biggest fan. He was the one who, who gave me my first cannabis experience. He, he came over with the crusty, ugly bong. So thanks to him, I, I have House of Pup. And we were on this journey together. He, you know, he looks at my pro formas and my P&Ls because he's in finance. Last summer, we, uh, we attempted to, to grow uh, for the first time. And he really was managing that process and, and showing me everything he was learning. And it was just this beautiful experience between us. And at the dinner table, I'm sure he's tired of me talking about, you know, all the investor meetings I'm having and everything that's going right and everything that's going wrong. Uh, but he loves to talk about it. I'm very fortunate that I have a partner who, who doesn't get tired of it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, I didn't expect uh, probably any less. Somebody that has the energy you do, I knew that there's probably a uh, a good other half there somewhere. Totally. Let's talk about um, you know another thing that I love that you are destigmatizing is um, how you've openly talked about suffering from generalized anxiety disorder to some degree, and then playing into how you ultimately got into cannabis. Is that am I am I articulating that the right way? Because I think it's. Um, I think it's an awesome thing that you're doing uh, because I think a lot more people suffer from uh, anxiety than you know than people talk about. So to hear somebody talk about it in the position you're in, representing you know marginalized groups to a certain extent, is pretty awesome. But how did that? How much did that play into your role of getting into cannabis as a user and then into the industry? Sure. Being a Latina and talking about my mental health is very important to me because I know a lot of Latinas and 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 people of color. Um, we it, it's very difficult for us uh, to have access to resources to talk about it to feel comfortable talking about it. So if at the end of the day I can help somebody talk through it and with them. Uh, that makes me happy. I have always been an open book with my cannabis with my anxiety issues. Uh, I think I was drawn to cannabis because of that. I, people are drawn to cannabis because they just like to have a good time, unwind. Those are all fantastic things. I think that, that women are most often drawn to cannabis due to health issues or problems, anxiety, depression, insomnia, pain. When I had my twins, my anxiety after I gave birth, it got worse. And I and I went to cannabis once again. and. I, I'm thankful that I have the resources to, and access to, to, to safe cannabis to help me, uh, combat it and work through it. And I think it, I think my anxiety propelled me into 
putting, bringing House of Puff uh, into formation. I, I don't, I'm not sure I would have tried cannabis otherwise. Maybe, I don't know. But my main, my main uh, goal was to try it to, let's see if this is going to make me feel better. Let's see if this is going to sort of give me that, that aha moment of uh, turning the light bulb on and, and realizing it's going to be okay. And, and cannabis does just that. Awesome. Well, I think it's inspiring that you're uh, super open about it. And I think you're probably connected with a lot of people and uh, you're doing a lot of uh, helping them out by, by talking about it. And then how big is the segment? Like, I know, I don't mean to bring you back into your, uh, into your investor meetings by asking these types of questions, but how big do you think the, or do you lay out the, the segment of uh, women, maybe women of color to a certain degree, and then maybe even, you know, women that, you know, experience anxiety, which is probably, you know, a lot of people. And I'm sure there's, you know, it's targeting men at the same time, but how big is the segment that you're targeting currently, do you estimate? The, the, the segment that we're targeting is probably around $2.6 billion. Uh, in 2020, women cannabis consumers, they, they rose steadily, hitting 51% uh, of all consumers by Q1 of 2021. I mean, it, women are on the rise in terms of cannabis consumption. Why more companies are not marketing to them? I have no idea. Women... Um, 59% of women who are uh, who use cannabis, um, they tend to use it more. And again, 21% are consuming daily, 40% are consuming multiple times a day. So this is a big market, especially as more states come online. You know, it, once the Northeast is fully lit up, I would be shocked if we didn't see federal legalization shortly thereafter. But it's the, the total addressable market I think, I mean, the numbers always change. I don't know about what you've heard, Max, but I think in totality, 50 billion, uh, that, that's, a, that's a lot of money. It's <laughs> yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I, I think uh, what you're doing is awesome. The other thing I want to get into is um, I really feel like I'm all the way in Arizona. I've spent time in New York. Um, I think the New York cannabis scene uh, is is different and different in a good way. Yeah. It's finally tying everything together. We're like, this is going to go down New York style. And, and I think <laughs> New York tell me about style. like, what do you, what do you, how do you articulate the New York scene? I'm not saying it's def, uh, better necessarily, but I think it's tying a lot of things together, especially for people outside the state that are going to watch and sit back and maybe seeing it done a little bit more right with a little bit more flair with, mm -hmm. cons with consumption lounges, they're going to be over the top. I can't even imagine. It's just going to oh be more gosh. great. New York. But how are, how do you how can you explain how the New York scene is a little bit different uh, than really what we've seen in in the past? Listen, New Yorkers, we're cut from a different fabric, right? We have our own pace, our own way of life, our own style. We are it's we're like a little mini country. We're so. We're so diverse. We're the media capital. We're the financial capital. We're the fashion capital. We're all of these things. And it's so fascinating to see. I, I mentioned to you that we're in an active raise and investors that were not looking to touch the plan or even invest in cannabis companies, let's say a year ago, 
all of a sudden are trickling through my inbox and saying, oh, hey, House of Puff, know you're based in New York. What's going on? So you're starting to see more and more people come out of the woodwork, interested in the space, wanting to invest. Uh, there's no there's no other there's no better place in New York City. I'm sorry to say, Max. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I don't think you have to explain anymore. I think everybody, <laughs> regardless of where you're from, unless you're like a Boston uh, Red Sox fan, you'll they'll agree that New York's going to do this bigger and better. And it's really kind of tying a lot of things together as, uh, as America continues to uh, legalize and, and hopefully go federal soon. Let's talk about, you and I talk about this on our first phone, first phone call. And I think speaking of how New York came to be and legalized, I think it's interesting how kind of COVID, you know, kind of came into this picture, especially for you and, and your business model. And uh, tell us how COVID kind of adversely affected your brand in some ways. And then, I think where you ended up, you learned a lot from it and you know that, that were great learning lessons. But talk about uh, how COVID adversely affected your brand and, and how you pivoted. So it affected the, I'll go with the negative. The negative part of it was the supply chain issues. We were having bad supply chain, especially with our clay. A lot of our products are made from porcelain. And so there was apparently a clay shortage and that was very difficult to, we couldn't fill orders. And so we were, you know, leaving money on the table and that was, that was a tough pill to swallow. Um, a lot of the dispensaries and retail shops that we were in, unfortunately closed. How we pivoted was how do we reach our audience? What do we have to do? Where is everybody? Well, everybody was at home and we launched an editorial site called the drawing room. By the way, I didn't want to launch a blog. I was like, we're, I don't have to, we don't have time to be keeping up with an editorial site, updating it every day. Uh, but my CEO, Holly, thought it, it would behoove us. And thank God we did. The ROI on our editorial site, the drawing room is, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we went, so we did that. And then we launched a YouTube channel. And again, I was like, do we have time for this? But again, everybody was home. Video, video was in. YouTube was seeing the most traffic it ever seen. And um, we know that producing your own content and producing your own video content. Video is the format of today and the future. It increased our organic traffic, retention, boosted our conversion by, I don't know, one or 2%. It was fantastic. And we just do evergreen content because again, we're speaking to this, this new adapter or this non-adapter. And we went from a digital reach of 46,000 to 4.5 million. So we came out of the pandemic with, with a lot of more followers, customers, engagement. We came out with a bigger community. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I did go watch your video. I don't know what it is. It was kind of mesmerized. I watched it twice on, if you guys have not seen it, she's got a video on uh, how to roll a joint and it's got like 550 something thousand views and counting. Oh, wow. It's up to 550. Huh? Yeah, That's great. Yesterday when I looked at it and I watched it twice for some reason, like I don't, there's something about it that is just like interesting. Uh, I love your unapologetic, like about style and the way things should be done and how it should be done. I just, you, you don't really, you don't see much of that in cannabis yet. Uh, so I love how you're leading the way and that comes through in that video, I believe, just because mm -hmm. it's kind of your voice and kind of this is how it's done and, you know, using your products, which look fantastic in the video. Um, 
Talk about uh, kind of going back to New York. We've, you've referred in the past, and I think this is starting to change, but you talked mm-hmm. about New York still being in the cannabis closet. I think I know what that means, but like explain kind of what you mean by that. <laughs> I actually don't. I, did I say that? <laughs> I, thought it, yeah, I thought when we were talking or I read that, you know, you said <laughs> New York is still, you know, kind of kind of in the cannabis closet. Like it hasn't kind of come out yet as far as, you know, people haven't felt comfortable uh, kind of in New York uh, yet, but this, you know, that could have passed us by already, and and uh, New York is starting to feel more comfortable. Yeah, I I'm not sure New York is in the cannabis closet anymore. I you can't walk outside of your apartment without getting a nice big whiff of of cannabis, which is great. I think I, maybe what you're referring to is the, the legacy market and them being a little weary, right? And rightfully so. And I think that New York has a lot to figure out as it relates uh, to the legacy market, because let's face it, without them and without activists, this legal market that we're about to have would not exist, full stop. Got it. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think that's probably where I took some notes on it. But tell, tell me then, like, what do you, what is your, and I, we're not going to hold you to this, but I usually ask people, hey, what do you think is going to happen in the cannabis industry in the next five years? Instead, I'll ask you, what is best case scenario for how cannabis industry plays out in New York? Best case scenario. Let's see. I think that, well, first you can't have folks sitting in jail, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, generational wealth and that the black and brown community are the leaders in this space and that we bring in legacy operators in the right way. And they have access to capital and access uh, for uh, you know, training or, you know, jobs, data, whatever they need, um, because we're essentially asking these people to say to come out of the woodwork and 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 be OK with uh, with the government. And after all of the the terrible things that they've been through, whether it's through the banking system, whether it's being formally incarcerated, we're just supposed to assume that they're just going to trust the state. Uh, so I think, uh, I hope that the state of New York does right by the legacy market because uh, they are the backbone. Um, so that's sort of the North star uh, for, for I think a lot of New Yorkers is that this is an equal playing field uh, and not just white rich men at the top. <laughs> no, I, I uh, 100% agree. I think from what I've seen, New York has been very intentional about uh, making sure that it goes down that way. So I love the fact that you're kind of visualizing it that way. I mean, how do we, and this might be a really loaded question because if people knew how to do this, California wouldn't be the way it is, but how do, what do, what do we need to do to get the illicit market moved over to legitimize licensed companies? Because that's, you know, that's kind of the, the point that we're talking on, but what do you, what needs to happen in order to, um, you know, to, for, to get these people to trust the licensing process and those things. Is there something that we should do uh, that we can do to help it? Or what do you think needs to happen? I think they need access to to, to grant money, capital. Uh, I think that we should be offering our knowledge, pro bono services, anybody who's been marginalized, 
anybody in the in the in the legacy market wanting to get in the in the legal industry. And trust me, they all for the most part, for my friends who are legacy operators, they want to be a part of the legal market. Um, but we need to we need to help them financially and and give them access to to, to capital. And there's there are a lot of predatory deals out there right now that are happening. And it's it's really unfortunate. And you're seeing people not knowing what to do. And they think, oh, well, here's $100,000 for the, the incredible legacy company that you've built. And I'm going to come in and then they get booted out. Right. So it's making sure um, that they have access to safe capital, I should say, that they um, they have access to 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 anything that they need to get their foot in the door. Um and, and comfortable working with, with the state and government. 100% agree. I think uh, leaders like you are gonna help this process as well. Um, just, you know, kind of the way you're talking about it, the example that you're setting. I mean, you're an entrepreneur laying it all, all out there on the line. And um, so I think it's, it's awesome to hear, you know, you kind of express your, uh, your passion around, um, you know, it being equitable. And then talk about, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this a uh, little bit, but, you know, we're passionate about helping people that are incarcerated for, you know, nonviolent cannabis, uh, call them crimes back then, but for, you know, cannabis related stuff. It, it's particularly, I think, important in New York because New York has the highest rate of arrest for cannabis related charges in the country. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, talk about your passion around getting people's uh, record expunged for cannabis related charges. I mean, I think it's a very, it's an easy one. If we're all going to make money in this industry, why are we not going back and expunging people? But uh, is there anything else that kind of hits home for you when you think about, you know, moving in an industry where there's people incarcerated uh, for doing the same things basically that we're doing now? I mean, <laughs> And you said it, you hit the nail on the head, like expungement, expungement, expungement for nonviolent cannabis crimes. Why are people, I think 40,000 people are still sitting in jail. I mean, that is absolutely freaking, I will get, I, I get like turned up when I, when I talk about this, Th that's absurd. You have people making millions and billions of dollars and there are people still setting, sitting in jail. So the cannabis industry won't actualize itself, won't realize we won't hit our full potential if that is still happening. Like that should, that's the first stop on, 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 on everybody's list. It should be is, is expungement. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. We, uh, as an exercise last week, uh, as a company, we all wrote letters, you know, just as we we're sitting around, we wrote some letters to prisoners to give them a little hope because they will, uh, we will find them and get them out. Uh, if that's the reason why they're, they're sitting behind bars, which, you know, I, I had the uh, I had the honor of having uh, Andrew D'Angelo uh, on the show and for the Last Prisoner Project, and yeah. he put it in perspective of, you know, it's one thing to be in prison. Imagine being in prison during COVID, you know, which I think is yeah. starting to be a little bit behind us, but still an issue. Right. But man, that really put it in perspective to me. Like, wow, you know, you're in you're in jail for selling you know two ounces of weed, which in this day and age is you know, in, in the way we're producing it now, is not yeah. a lot. Um, so I'm so glad that you're passionate about it, especially in a state that has the highest, uh, highest um, charges uh, in, the, in the country. Um, if you're you know, not passionate about it, then pick, pick a different industry uh, and, steer, uh, and then steer clear of, of, of us, right? hundred percent, hundred If you're going to go make money on something, you, if you don't have the foresight and the wherewithal to look back and think, 
wow, somebody is actually sitting in a prison cell for selling a quarter of what it, for a plant that was grown naturally, uh, it blows my mind. So I'm just, I, I wanted to talk about that because I know you're also passionate about it. Just to, as people listen to these uh, podcasts, just to wear, uh, raise their awareness about them. Uh, how are you kind of, we, we touched on this actually before we started the show here. Uh, you're currently in an active race uh, for capital for your company, which mm-hmm. I wanted to bring some awareness to because I think you're, I think when people uh, think about investing, you're investing in an idea. But in, and a lot of times, you're you're really p- people pick the the horse, which is you know we be, be investing in you. And from what I've heard so far, uh, you have so much passion around this, and you have a lot of the right ingredients to to make build this company and a really awesome foundation. So uh, talk about how that's going, um, and uh, how else are you helping women and you know VC funding just in general? I. I am really passionate about getting other women involved in in the funding space. Now, let me set up for you a, a really sad statistic. Lat, Lat, the Latinx community, we're the second largest population in the U.S., fastest growing group of startup entrepreneurs, and yet Latina female founders receive only 0.4, not 4, 0.4% of venture capital funding. I mean, how terrible is that number, right? I mean, that's abysmal. And then you have, I think I read the other day, the the national median, so we're in our active seed raise. The national funding is about, for seed rounds, about 2.5 million. The median seed round for a black woman founder is 125,000 and 200,000 for Latinas. So those numbers are, when I think about that, it's a tough pill to swallow. But of course, I don't let that stop me, right? Most of the investors I'm talking to are not women and they're not women of color. So getting more, and you have people like Helene, Journey One Ventures, she's 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 doing what she can to bring in more women uh, LPs into, into the funding uh, ecosystem. It's hard. It's hard to be a woman. It's hard to be a woman of color, fundraising. I'm trying to have fun with it. I get to speak to a lot of investors, but I would be lying to to say if when I hear that my white male counterparts are getting funded on a on a napkin, 10 million, 10 million in their seed round for no, no product and no revenue yet. But you know, people tend to invest in people they can relate. And it really grinds my gears when I hear an investor say, oh yeah, I love House of Puff. I get it. I'm not your target audience, maybe my daughter or my wife. And I'm, you know, that I have to sort of bite my tongue when they say that because it's an investor's job to see through the the chaos and find the needle in the haystack. But uh, we we have our we have a great uh, line of advisors and I tr- and I trust them and they guide me and I will any adv- give advice to anybody who's fundraising especially especially if you're just starting out the power of a warm intro so to people at the top uh, you know li- give us a hand because a warm intro can go a long way and it's it's ta- it's there are so many people in the cannabis space who have been so kind to introduce me to their investors and their network and and we that's how we usually close deals is is through a warm intro awesome well i think you're a powerhouse and i think uh you're doing Thank what you. you can do by setting a great example and 
ultimately you're going to be successful and you're going to pave the way for a lot of women. So this is, uh, is amazing. I hope so. I hope so. I, I believe in you. And we've been really honored if, if anybody that who has been listening to our shows, we have been very intentional about finding some pretty badass women in cannabis. Uh, so you're, you're kind of, you're, you're in this uh, class that we've been intentionally putting on our podcast so we can blast this because we feel it's the right thing to do. And we do feel like there's some inequities. It's almost as uh, crazy that the statistics you're talking about is, you know, the, the types of people that are incarcerated compared to, you know, the rest of the general population. I mean, it's, those numbers are like silly out of whack as well. So we'll start getting these, this stuff, um, settled out. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, you and I, and I, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on this and I know others will be as well, but I think from that COVID pivot, it sounded like you started to, uh, learn even more about SEO um, as it relates to cannabis and just SEO in, <laughs> in general. So uh, tell us, you know, this could be a really long conversation, but we'll, you know, kind of talk about it at a high level. Tell us what were the biggest learning lessons you learned about SEO within the industry? So there are a lot of companies that will do SEO for clicks and it SEO is a science, right? Like, what's the the newest and best terpene? No, like we're not, I'm not reading, you know? So you, you got to balance what people are searching for and, and do some search listening. We go to our community, we go to our Instagram. We, we, we ask them, what do you want to see from us? What do you want to learn about? A lot of it is back to this sort of evergreen content, how to roll a joint, how to throw a terpene infused dinner party. We don't, while we do love using search listening tools, I think there is a balance. Um, and we all know the companies out there that are just doing it for clicks. We try not to do that. It, it, I'll give you a great example. I don't like saying, I don't like using the word weed all the time. I prefer using the term cannabis. Unfortunately, if you're trying to do a post on the best cannabis strains for you, for example, that SEO might have not what you're looking for. Now, best weed strains for you, that's a whole, so you have to, you have to sort of be careful and do that dance between keeping your editorial integrity versus just doing it for SEO. What we did during the pandemic was we took a three-month Neil Patel course. He's like the SEO king and breaks it down in a really digestible way and learned a lot. And we have a bunch of tools that we use and anybody in the cannabis space who wants to talk nerd out on SEO, please feel free to hit me up because we have to get creative because we're shadow banned on Instagram, Facebook, taking out ads, for example. It's hard for us, even as an ancillary company, we, we won't touch the plant. The minute we post on TikTok, uh, uh, one of our one hitter pipes taken down maybe five seconds later. I mean, it's it's incredible. Uh, so as as cannabis entrepreneurs, you got to get creative, and SEO has been has been one of those ways to get creative. That's awesome. Well, uh, maybe Elon Musk uh, buying. Oh God! <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that'll change stuff. I I don't know. We need some some remains special. to be seen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of there's a lot there. Uh, digging into like uh, your personal life just a little bit. I think yeah. it's amazing. You have uh, twins that are two now. Three. Three. Okay. So I have a th I have a three year old, almost four. So I can only imagine what two of those would be like. 
but tell me, like, what do you, from a personal habits and like daily ritual rituals and routines, what have turned you into the good leader, mother, hu- uh, wife, you know, th- those things? I'm, I'm just really interested because I think there's a lot of women out there that are in the same seat you are, that have young kids, that are trying to push forward in a career. But what are some of the things that keep you kind of focused, energized, um, and ha- ultimately happy? I think what keeps me happy and energized is my family. They keep me grounded. They keep me on my toes for sure, but I feel very supported. It's important to feel support at home. They give me the wings, not to be corny, to go do what I want to do. I want to be the role model that my mom was to my twins. And they they're young, but I know they see me working day in and day out and mommy's building this and mommy's doing this. And I think that it, kids aren't dumb. I think that they see when you're happy and you're doing what you love, they pick up on your energy. And I just feel extremely lucky. My, my parents actually live with me and we have a big enough house where, you know, there, there are days that we don't see each other. But it does take a village. Don't get it twisted. And I, and my mom would always say, well, when you have kids, you'll see, you're going to want me around all the time. And I'm like, well, I already want you around all the time. You're my best friend. But uh, living with living with your parents and you know, people are like, wait, what? But it, I, I don't know what I would do without them. I mean, they are there for me when I'm traveling on the road, when I'm having all these investor calls. And so number one is, is support and and when they're old enough to, to, to figure out what mommy does, we're going to have that, that conversation and normalize it. And when they're, when they start asking, well, my, my, my advisor jokes that I was making brownies infused brownies for YouTube. And I said, well, they're going to come home soon. It's it clearly smells like cannabis in my kitchen. What do I do? She goes, Oh, just tell them it smells like love. And I was like, I like that. <laughs> no, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yes. I have uh uh, th- almost four year old, but I also have uh, 18. I have three stepkids and a son from a previous marriage. So we have five. Uh-huh. Wow. So uh, you know, the conversations are getting a little bit more real because I have to have that conversation now of like, what is that? You know, what does that smell? Uh, what, what about, is there anything, are you into like meditation, yoga, anything that kind of helps you keep balanced like personally and kind of keeps you, you know, keeps you <laughs> up and up? No, I'm not. I tried. Listen, I tried the yoga. I tried the meditation and I I could lie and tell you, oh, yeah, I'm totally Zen because of it. I'm not. What works for me is a hot shower. Since I was a kid, my mom always said I loved being in the bath. I love taking a shower. There's something about being in the shower where my diffused thinking starts to, to come out and I can unlock my brain better. I, if you ask my husband, I talk to myself in the shower because I go through scenarios of problem solving and I, my best ideas, a lot of our products, House of Puff products are shower thoughts. I, I should actually just do a whole series called shower thought accessories because I just, that's when I unwind. It's when I, I, I just feel energized and I feel good. And it's my time. Everybody knows if, Christina's in the shower, do not come knocking or there will be problems. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, there is nothing like a good shower. I have mastered. We have a really good shower with a lot of 
just the right amount of pressure, uh, which, yeah. is, uh, which you don't get a lot of places. Um, yeah. And, and I have a big enough shower where sometimes I can sneak in like a little baby, like a pure beauty, little mini joint, and I'll take one or two puffs and then that's it. I'll be in there for 40 minutes because if I'm a little high and taking a shower, I mean, I might come, I mean, I mean, I might find the cures to all the diseases in the world. I mean, I really, my brain just goes, it's, it's a really good feeling. <laughs> you probably just started a, uh, you just started a fad. Every, every person out there is now thinking, especially mom that needs to get away from the kids and needs a break. They're now taking a puff of a joint and, and taking a shower because of you. So great job. There you go. There you go. So we're going to, we're going to start going into what we call, uh, our final segment. And our final segment is based off of the white scouts leadership model for hiring. So we believe the best leaders on earth consistently show proof points in the following three areas, being a relentless learner, developing others and driving results. So I'm going to ask you a question or two in each area. Um, just, and we do, we've been doing this with all of our guests. And so it's kind of okay. a common thread. Um, and I think I might know the answer to some of this because you've been so awesome with what you've shared with us so far. But from a relentless learning standpoint, who or what was your biggest teacher? <laughs> well, I think we all know the answer to that. It's got to be Doc, Dr. Debbie Salas Lopez, my, my, my teacher, my confidant, uh, my role model. Uh, growing up with a strong Puerto Rican mother like that, I mean, how could I not, uh, how could that not be my answer? <laughs> yeah, no, 100%, 100%. I thought that's what it would be. Uh, was there any particular like life learning, like any specific thing that you learned uh, that you feel like you learned the most? It was like the biggest learning lesson that you've had. I would say networking about networking in the cannabis space has been really interesting. And what I've realized is it's such a beautiful community and family and networking is more about farming than it is hunting. Mm. I did not invent that. So please, that is not my quote. I can't remember where I read that, but it stuck with me. And I think growing your network and building relationships that are not just, hey, LinkedIn buddies and email and once in a while, it's really about cultivating those relationships, helping others grow. And helping others grow is a great way to become a leader. And it also helps cultivate an inclusive community. So so that that's my, that's my answer for that one. That's a good question. Oh, that, I like that. Thank you for, uh, it's an awesome answer. And then you kind of got into this. So this kind of blends into developing others. Uh, what motivates you to develop others? Like you're, you know, what, what I guess motivates you to spend the time to develop other people? I think growing up the way I did and growing up as a Latina, I want to use entrepreneurship as a vehicle for community change, right? And I think it's important to advocate for social change and but you have to show up. You have to be consistent, right? And I, I want to be able to create more opportunities for women like myself um, and, and the BIPOC community and the LGBTQIA communities. Um, and how can I, as a founder, purposely make those opportunities happen? And I mean, as no surprise, hiring them, right? amplifying their stories like you do, Max, and, and, and bringing more women on, on your show. And 
and supporting organizations that that build up people in those communities uh, that I can't reach. I also love to to talk to, to to young folks and young entrepreneurs. So if you find me on LinkedIn, please don't be bashful because I was that was me. I I didn't know how to go find those opportunities or find those people who can, you know, that one hand that can bring you along for the ride. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if I can be that tide or would I be that boat? Maybe both. Um, that's that's what I want to do. I think you're being both. So I think that's <laughs> a very good way to, to uh, kind of stumble into that. But I really do think you're being both. Um, what from a driving results standpoint, and I know you're super humble, so this may be a little harder, but this doesn't have to be just professional uh, life. But what would you say your biggest success is to date? My biggest success to date is building a company, no matter if it's successful or, you know, creates revenue. And if I'm a unicorn, that to me, fine. That, that if the money comes great, but I am really proud of myself for taking that leap and taking that risk and building something you know, by myself at first, and then finding the right people, getting the right people in the right seat on the bus with me. And and if it all goes to shit, at least I built something, right? And I can say I was a founder of a cannabis company. How many people can say that? Well, I hope more people in the future. But that to me, that's 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 it. That's I've done my job. I, I built a brand and and a good one at that. Awesome. You, I, I'm confident you're going to be very successful with the energy you have and the resilience that you have. How do the listeners get a hold of you? Let's uh, let's make sure to spend a little bit of time on the best way to connect to you. Obviously on LinkedIn, uh, Christina Aducci. She does have, yeah. as I think, in parentheses. That's what got me thinking about this morning as I looked at it. I'm like, wait a minute. Do I call her Christina Lopez Aducci? But so Christina Aducci uh, Lopez is in parentheses at this point, but you'll find her there. Yes. Else. Yes. You can find me on Instagram, Christina Aducci. Uh, House of Puff is the House of Puff on Instagram, houseofpuff.com. And yeah, feel free to slide into my DMs, as the kids say. And I'm happy to to, to connect with, with you and, and make magic. Awesome. Well, you've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Scouts. You can listen to all our past and future podcasts at wisecouts.com. Christina, I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything left that you'd like to share with the audience? Anything I want to share with the audience, keep on keeping on and come see us in New York because uh, we're taking over. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work and leadership you can hear any of our previous shows 24 7 wherever you get your podcasts